Presented by CyberScoop, DC CyberTalks is a TED-like conference dedicated to addressing cybersecurity priorities, trends, innovations, and the unprecedented security challenges ahead. For one day, 1,000 of the most influential cyber leaders from tech and government will gather in D.C. to hear the industry's brightest speakers discuss the most critical issues in cybersecurity and just hear some smart people talk. It's going to be a good time. Check us out October 25th. For more information, check out dccyberweek.com. Register. Clear your calendar. We're going to have some great guests. The CIO of Atlanta is going to talk. The chief trust officer for Uber is going to be there. Check out more at dccyberweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for September 27th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jim Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. The president is all about CrowdStrike for all the wrong reasons. FedEx shareholders are fighting over NotPetya, and bug bounty companies may have some workforce issues in California. In our interview, we talked with Keenan Scally of Circadence, a game show cybersecurity training. Small seed companies got their funding this week. We'll break down what companies sound cool and what ones sound kind of confusing, but let's get to a wild week. In the story that came out of nowhere, President Trump asked President of Ukraine to locate a server linked with CrowdStrike, according to unclassified notes of the call released Wednesday. Trump has long alleged a DNC server is missing, a theory which appears to be based on an unsubstantiated conspiracy theory that CrowdStrike was involved in some kind of cover-up with the DNC to hide something in 2016. But in reality, there are no machines linked with the DNC breach that are actually missing, and instead of one server, there were actually more than 140 servers the DNC decommissioned in June of 16. Great, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, um, it was a wild, wild um, turn of events to you know read through this uh, call that's made so much noise in D.C. And to find out that uh, the president was talking about a cybersecurity company for some reason and this this theory that just won't go away in right-wing conspiracy circles that CrowdStrike teamed up with the DNC to somehow frame Russia for the hacking of the DNC in 2016 and that the real evidence lies somewhere in Ukraine because CrowdStrike somehow took a physical server, dumped it in Ukraine and that's where the the true answers lie to the mystery of 2016. Like, no, that that's that's none of that makes any sense. That's not how this works. That seems really far fetched. Yeah, it, and yet the leader of the free world is trying to perpetuate that and uh, you know get Ukraine to allegedly help him create some disinformation in 2020. I like, I, I, I don't know if that's really the logic that was filed here. Um, it, it's just a, a lot of people, including CrowdStrike themselves. I mean, we talked to some CrowdStrike people afterwards to be like, do you have any inclination what this is about whatsoever? And they were like, um, no, not really. And we're just going to try to laugh it off because we don't understand why we would be a, a, on this call at all. So, yeah, it's it's all so exhausting to feel like we have never really left 2016 and that the conspiracy theories that are about 2016 that have no basis in fact are just 
sticking around and never going away. Like everybody just needs to move on and nobody seemed to be able to move on. Has CrowdStrike given any sort of official word to say what's up, what's going on here? Yeah, they they released a statement that said, you know, we worked with the DNC in 2016. Everybody is aware that we have done that. We stick by what we said then. And we have no real inclination as to why our name keeps being brought up. (laughs) I mean, that's that's about all, all you can say to prevent having this go from, you know, just a, a small little blip to a dumpster fire. So, yeah, I, I mean, it didn't really affect their business at, at all. I mean, I, I think their stock it, it dropped not even a full percentage point on Wednesday when this all came to light. And it, I mean, if you would have looked at the stock market and, and seen their stock price over the course of the day, you would have never guessed that the president attached them to a conspiracy theory. Like it just looked like another regular day on the market. So it clearly didn't affect their business from any bottom line standpoint. Well, and I'm guessing that no one's really taking real weight into um, what the president's saying about um, a cybersecurity company. Right. And, and that's, you're right there. I don't, everybody was just like, Oh, why is CrowdStrike being talked about? Oh, they're attached to some weird conspiracy theory. Oh, okay, that's weird. That's sad. We're just going to move on. Like, uh, okay, uh, another day in this weird, weird world we're in. Awesome. So before that mess unfurled, the U.S. and 26 other nations on Monday kicked off the U.N. General Assembly in New York by issuing a statement that called out both state and non-state actors for targeting critical infrastructure during peacetime interfering in politics, and conducting intellectual property theft. They also suggested imposing costs on those that seek to undermine established cyber norms. And although none of the dignitaries or foreign ministers present on Monday named Russia or China, the subtext was clear. It is the hope of the U.S. and 26 other nations that the cyber norms delineated here and will not be diluted in the future. Jen, we've been hearing about this for a while. Do you have any hope that something will be different this time around? I don't know how we can expect anything to be different, right? I mean, meaning to talk about um, what state actors are doing or not doing, this isn't going to move the needle. They're not right. They're not on board with everybody else. Right. And in more in depth, there are these two competing groups in the UN. There's the group of governmental experts, and then there's the open-ended working group, which are both working towards cyber norms, except that... China and Russia are attached to the open-ended working group and the group of government experts has everyone else. So it, it, it's clear that they're butting heads because everybody wants to try to plant their flag and draw their red lines and their borders on what is and is not acceptable. And it's just you know uh, another part of the fight. It, it, it really doesn't seem to me that you're going to see anything really concrete happen. Now, I've talked to some officials uh, during the week that were up there and they said, no, you know what? Everybody is really working toward a goal and there is more being done than meets the eye, which, okay, they can say that. I don't necessarily believe that, but I I don't see how two competing groups are eventually going to come to one conclusion that satisfies everybody's desires on the way that norms are going to look. No. And if you're going to do something like this, everyone needs to get on the same page and they need to work first on getting on that same page, figuring out what's in common between the two groups and 
and, and sort of move from there. Um, coming out with two approaches isn't the smartest idea. Right. And I don't necessarily think that even if the UN does magically find a way to draw up a deterrence that the entire world agrees upon, that actors like China and Russia are going to listen. I mean, this supports what they're trying to do as far as, you know, the mission in their countries and it works for them. And as long as it continues to work and they continue, you know, to be relatively unscathed in doing so, then why would they ever listen to the UN on these norms? I just, I don't get it. I don't think it's ever going to happen. So former U.S. Cyber Command official says that China and Russia's use of cyber attacks has ended the way the U.S. military thinks about warfare, given the incident's direct impact on civilians rather than armed forces. Brett Williams, a former deputy of operations for the command, said at an IT conference in New York City last week that the two adversaries have made it so the military can no longer play an away game. We don't want to have to fear on U.S. soil. Anything we get into with China and Russia, the first impact is going to be felt on our civilian population. So, Greg, do you agree on that point? It's going to be civilians, not soldiers? Oh, I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, think of just WannaCry, for instance, and what happened to some of the companies that were attacked. Think about all of the ransomware attacks that we've seen. That affects the government and in, mm-hmm. in these cities, and that then affects the population. Like China and Russia and North Korea, sure, they're launching attacks on the American military, but they're finding the soft spot is all of these civilian targets, like the companies, like the healthcare industry, like these cities that just don't have the cybersecurity protection. And it's it's a total mind shift for the way that the US likes to conduct their military operations. The US does not like to fight wars domestically. I mean, think about it. Over over the the you know, the history of the country, when's the last time we had a war that actually happened on American soil? The, the Civil War. I mean that, that right. I mean, think about how long that was. It's just it's just not something that is in the mindset of the modern military. So cybersecurity is really changing that. And uh, Brett Williams, you know, gets that that mind shift needs to occur, not just on the military side, but also on the corporate side. Like everybody's involved in this. And hey, if you don't want your civilians attacked, if you don't want your company brought to its knees, you need to participate in this just like you would alongside the military. So shore up your defenses and get ready to stop them because they're at the gates. Yeah, it'll be sort of interesting to watch. And and, and certainly, um, you know, we are the biggest targets and our critical infrastructure is the biggest target and we have to figure out a way to protect everything. And, you know, it was interesting to hear him talk about the, the changes that occurred over the past decade because he was adamant in saying that, look, the military didn't get this right from day one. He talked about when the Russians compromised uh, DOD servers by dropping weaponized USB sticks outside American forts and outside American outposts around the world. And once, you know, they saw what was possible, they changed things and they understood what was needed for defense. And they understand that accountability was a big thing too. So he preached that, you know, these enterprises on the corporate side need to follow that model if they ever want to stop Iran or China or Russia from really wreaking havoc in their systems and their business. 
So Magecart 5, one of at least 12 groups of payment scammers, is targeting commercial Layer 7 routers, which are frequently found in airports, casinos, hotels, and resorts. While IBM, who conducted the research, says its team didn't find any vendors that had been compromised, access to L7 routers could provide hackers with a view into all of the users relying on that Wi-Fi network. It's the latest evidence that open Wi-Fi networks only are as trustworthy as the people who have access to them. And the worst part is that ads, JavaScript injections, and a massive number of captive users who come and go would find it hard to point to where they lost their financial data. Researchers explain. Jen, sounds like a pitch-perfect ad for a VPN. Wait, why is anyone connected into open Wi-Fi? That sounds like a terrible idea. Yeah. Do you connect into to public Wi-Fi when you check into a hotel? I So I use the Wi-Fi that comes with the hotel, but I'm automatically going to a VPN. Like, that's just automatic for me. Yeah. Especially, and, and in an airport too, I, I would imagine that just airports are just ripe for, you know, sitting on these routers and taking what you can. I mean, because think about the, somebody using a computer in the airport. They're probably not using it that long. You, you're probably looking at anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. They're not going to worry about their security so much. They're going to attach to what is easy for them because they're already traveling and, you know, think about all the things that you're doing at an airport. You're checking into a hotel. You're checking if your other flights are good. You might be buying right. internet for the flight. You might be buying, um, you know, uh, other travel associated things. You might be doing a, a little bit of business. You're doing what you can and you're doing it on the fly. So it's a perfect time to just comb through internet traffic and take all the payment data that you can. Well, I think the other um, interesting place on this is when you when you've logged into someone's Wi-Fi somewhere, like for instance, like a Panera somewhere, and maybe you did it in like an emergency situation, but now every time you drive by a Panera's, you're not connected into their Wi-Fi unless you've turned that off. Um, I think that's that's kind of interesting too, an easy way to pick up people and credit card information. Yeah, I mean, hey, another great reason to just Always have uh, a VPN and be careful of what you're doing when you're traveling. So hackers apparently tried to infect mobile phones belonging to senior members of Tibetan groups, including people who work directly for the Dalai Lama, as well as members to Tibet's parliament. Citizen Lab on Tuesday detailed the apparent cyber espionage efforts, which involved attackers posing as journalists, Amnesty International researchers, NGO workers, and other faked identities to send malicious links in WhatsApp conversations. Researchers observed the campaign, dubbed Poison Carp, between November 2018 and May 2019. Some of the malicious tools were noted in similar attacks against China's Uyghur population, reported by Google's Project Zero team. Greg, this falls more in line with what China would use those zero days for, right? And and wh- why go after the Dalai Lama exactly? Well, uh, China does not like its Uyghur population. I should say the Chinese government does not like its Uyghur population. And the Chinese government has always gone after Tibet. So, you know, when we were talking about this story a couple of weeks ago, I was really surprised that uh, the zero days that were being used 
were going after Uyghurs and not Tibet. And here we are to find out that, oh, no, wait, they, in fact, were using them against, uh, against Tibet uh, as well, which uh, makes more sense to me. It just, you know, use them wherever you can. And that's why, you know, again, it was really surprising to me that that the scope of what was possible with these iOS and Android zero days were just going to be used on the Uyghur population. No, China's going to use these to track down any dissidents anywhere within the country. So it makes total sense to me that now on top of the Uyghurs, they are in fact using these zero days to go after Tibet as well. And can we talk about the name for a minute, Poison Carp? That's kind of lame. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it... Not the greatest, not the greatest name, a little bit too um, unwanted fud there. Just, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. Just, I, I would say the zero days are a lot more dangerous than any sort of name would ever convey. <laughs> they must use some sort of um, program to just like randomly pick two words. I think that there are actually joke sites out there that do that. So I wouldn't be surprised. So FedEx shareholders are accusing the company's executives of failing to disclose the full extent of the NotPetya ransomware attack, while also selling tens of millions of dollars worth of their own stock in the company. Stock owners allege that FedEx brass provided materially false and misleading statements about the ransomware attack. The suit alleges that FedEx failed to inform its shareholders that customers of a FedEx subsidiary, TNT Express, were abandoning the company in favor of other logistics providers as a result of NotPetya. Jen, uh, just two years after NotPetya, and we're still hearing about you know, the ramifications of how bad a ransomware attack can be. Yeah. I mean, it's, they're, they're certainly widespread. Um, and if we start, I mean, every time we pay, um, pay a ransomware, you know, five more are going to pop up. So we've got to figure out how to sort of get a handle on it. So we're not paying pings out. Yeah. I mean, and, and not just, it's not just the direct payments. It's okay. Yeah. You can talk about having money saved for payments. Do you have the money saved for lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit that is are going to come that way? I think it would have been a lot cheaper just to shore up your ransomware defenses than, you know, paying billable hours uh, two years after the attack. Just <laughs> it seems like the logical way to go. So I have not followed the story. Could you connect in um, TNT Express for me? So TNT Express is the FedEx subsidiary that was really hit hard. Uh, okay. after, uh, during the NotPetya attack. And that's where the lion's share of the damage FedEx incurred um, took place. So it, it looks like that TNT Express, they saw all the damage that was going into it. And then there were some executives that were like, okay, this is going to cost us uh, a bunch of money. Our stock's probably going to tank. I'm going to sell these shares and cash out right now before they're, you know, not worthless, but before they lose a, a ton of value. And I'm not going to tell anybody that it was due to this ransomware attack. Really interesting. So much of the attention around California's new labor law was focused on what it might mean for Uber and Lyft drivers. But the law could also have ramifications for bug bounty firms that connect Fortune 500 companies with external researchers who identify or help mitigate software vulnerabilities 
typically on a contract basis. The extent to which the law, which goes into effect on January 1st, is applicable to bug bounty freelancers will hinge on an individual-specific professional situation, employment attorneys said. Still, it could make it harder for businesses to rein triage talent. So, Greg, what else do you know about this? You know, we, we dove into this and we talked to a bunch of uh, labor experts, particularly in California, and the the jury's out right now on exactly how AB5 is going to affect bug bounty companies. It is going to affect them in some way, like they are not exempt from the law, but uh, there were some lawyers that were like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, bug bounty freelancers are going to be covered under this and they are going to have to work with the, the platform providers, be that whether it's HackerOne, uh, Synac, or Bug Crowd to figure out you know, how they're covered under the law. And then there were other, um, other lawyers and other experts that were like, look, there's this ABC test that goes with the law that really determines how employees fit with the companies that they work for. So it all depends on how these companies are classifying these workers. Um, but it's clear that uh, you know some of these companies are worried about it and then some of them are, are, are not and they realize that, okay, this is a new thing we have to adjust for. And it's just part of the reality of the gig economy now. So now to the business side of things, there were some smaller seed round fundings that were uh, announced this week. Uh, Cyber Fortress, a San Antonio, Texas-based insurance tech startup focused on protecting e-commerce companies from cyber threats, raised $3 million in seed funding from Greg Coft and Live Oak Venture Partners. SciCode, a solution for source code control, detection, and response, raised $4.6 million in seed funding from YL Ventures. And my favorite company name this week, Cowbell Cyber, a Pleasanton, California-based startup focused on AI-powered cyber insurance for small to mid-sized enterprises, raised $3.3 million in seed funding. Investors included Manchester Story Group, Holmes Murphy & Associates, Tri-Valley Ventures, and Global Insurance Accelerator. Jen, what do you think? So I have a question for you. Did you take the assessment? on your website to see what your security risks are being shut down was? I did not. I just did. Okay. Um, and it's not, it's not clear to me um, how they're doing the calculation. So I'm kind of interested in talking to them. Um, but I got a, I got a sort of a mediocre score. Um, and one of the things they tell me is that, it's going to be difficult potentially for me to t do things like take PayPal payments. Well, as far as I know, we don't take PayPal payments in any way. Um, so that was interesting. Um, we don't have that kind of business. Okay. Um, so just, just interesting. I, I imagine, um, you know, it's probably, I mean, there's some pretty good VCs, right? So that's gotta be um, pretty legit technology, but it'll be interesting. Yeah, um, it seems like there are a little bit. There's a little bit of work that needs to go into that. If you know, they're looking at your website saying, "Oh, you can't take PayPal payments." And it's like, well, okay, that's not our business model, so I'm not really worried about it. And why would I pay for your product then if your product doesn't can't make that differentiation based on you know what my business does? Yeah, and I guess, and I'm guessing that. Um 
were not a very good use case for it, right? So it probably wasn't fair that I that I did it, um, you know. But but certainly certainly interesting, right? And and a little bit scary if you can put in your web domain, check your email, and you come up with low score. I think that will scare some people into maybe making it more secure. Yeah, I'm really also interested in this Cowbell Cyber product just because. I was reading more about it and it looks like it combines some sort of machine learning with actuarial tables. And we've talked about on this show before that the actuarial tables for cyber insurance are really raw, if not like totally off base. So I'm wondering where they get their data from, because it just seems like the data and the actuarial tables are just way too new right now to try to stand up some product on it. Um, I think it's a good idea maybe five or 10 years down the road once we get those actuarial tables set in in a little bit more stone and and they're a little bit stronger. But right now, like, ooh, I I don't know if I'm, you know, if I'm a small or mid-sized enterprise, I'm not sure if I'm going to a startup that's selling me AI-powered cyber insurance. It just doesn't strike me as something that is quite there yet for the marketplace. But Greg... They use the buzzword AI. <laughs> hey, some then, you know, great. Some it, it clearly got a bunch of, of money. So some VCs are are willing to dump dump their funds into it. I, I just, looking at it from a product perspective, uh, I'm intrigued, but based on the description, uh, uh, I, I don't know, man. The, those actuarial tables, they're just not there. It should be interesting to learn more about it, though. Sounds like the next interview for us. So, okay, now to our interview with Keenan Skelly. Keenan comes from Circadence, a really interesting company that's looking at a way to train and retain cybersecurity talent, but they do it in gamification. And I know that word, speaking of buzzwords, that buzzword gets thrown around a lot in the terms of training, but Circadence actually had video game developers work with them in order to develop a platform that would actually be fun, engaging, and uh, worthwhile when it comes to cybersecurity training. So check out our interview with Keenan. Okay, joining us now is Keenan Skelly, the VP of Global Partnerships and Security Evangelist for Circadence. Keenan, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So, Circadence, for those not familiar, what exactly is Circadence? We do all the things. So. Oh, really? Just <laughs> yes. like everybody Just else? Just like everybody all else. All right, so this is going to be a long interview. Yeah. No, no um, we, we really focus on cyber learning, cyber training, cyber education, cyber exercising, things of that nature. But what makes Circadence really unique is that our approach is quite different than what other companies are taking really in this space. We are very... Um, very interested in gamification specifically, in artificial intelligence specifically, and how to use those technologies to make training more immersive, um, really, than what's being seen out there. You know, we're still seeing a lot of PowerPoint presentations being given to people, uh, even who are very technical. You may go to a course for a week and spend five days getting PowerPoint presentations and maybe one whole day to get to play on something interesting. 
Um, so our original product, Project Ares, really focused all of that technical training. But now we're working on some really cool um, products, and one of them that I'm really excited to talk about is Insight, which is meant for everybody else. Okay. So uh, gamification, how exactly do you gamify cybersecurity? So that is a great question, and not... Um, it's not easy. So what we did is we went out and we hired some brilliant uh, gamers, game folks from Sony, from a couple of other gaming companies, and we put them in a room with a bunch of really smart people on cybersecurity and said, okay, how do we do this? How do we incorporate things like leveling up? And how do we incorporate a concept that's very complex like um, ransomware or man-in-the-middle attacks and make it fun and engaging so that they understand it? And gamification is really the best way to do that in our minds. If you think about who is interested in cybersecurity in general, um, they tend to like games, right? Of course. But if you think about the broader population, everybody likes games. I mean, I have pretty popular. I have angry Video birds games, yeah. on my phone right now, and and I see people, you know, at the metro or on the bus station who are playing these games also. So it gives us a, a unique opportunity to get into a space where people like to play and want to learn more. They get rewarded uh, for learning, learning new um, cybersecurity concepts, which is wonderful. And it really teaches them about things that are well outside of just phishing or just ransomware. It's more about general security awareness and how you can stop it as an individual. So what does a game around ransomware look like? So in this case, um, you would get kind of a set of hackables that you have to protect and you have to do things to them to make them a little bit more hardened. You can put a firewall on them or things of that nature to try to defend yourself and your, your opponent can do the same. Um, so you will have the choice to do a couple of different things. You can either start with reconnaissance and really gather information on your opponent as best you can. Okay. And you'll get some tools to be able to do that. Or you can try to do a weapon to weaponize what you've learned about them. Or you can eventually get to the delivery of that weapon. Now, a lot of people in the game will start with the weapon because they think that's really cool. But there's actually a good learning lesson there because that's not how it works. Unless you know, you're a super professional, you have to do some reconnaissance first. You have to get the information needed. So it's really about, about breaking down those individual steps that get you to something like ransomware. And then once that happens, what kind of tools on your hackables you can use to really fix that? Do you, do you pay it off? Do you not pay it off? Do right. you burn the machine? Um, it's kind of up to you, and the different strategic answers that you might have are going to lead to different strategic paths. So how are you seeing this uh, take off inside uh, enterprises? And I guess before I say enterprises, who exactly is interested in these learning platforms? I would imagine that enterprises are interested as well, but what is the, the customer base that is interested in these platforms? So it's actually pretty broad. You know, we, um, we actually just had um, Microsoft sign on for Insight specifically to use okay. one of the that, That's a pretty large enterprise, okay. <laughs> so um, they're gonna be using it in kind of a capture the flag way where they have a lot of their non-technical people come in and actually uh, play against each other and play against the bot and see who can kind of get the highest score, who can take down the most people, um, which is kind of exciting. It's a now, I would imagine that this is Microsoft's, like this is outside of their security teams, because I imagine their security right. teams would be like, I do this all the time, exactly. like, what is happening right now? <laughs> yeah. But again, it's for the everyday employee. It's for people who, you know, they may work in a tech industry at very and have some knowledge about technology, but they 
definitely need some uh, security awareness on top of that. It's also something that we expect to launch out later to uh, universities or schools as well. Okay. So in our partnership with Microsoft, we're working to identify school districts and universities can, that can start using this at a younger age so that we're also using it to train kind of the next generation of uh, the human attack surface. So how have you seen training evolve with all of the talk around the cybersecurity skills gap? I mean, enterprises are starting to become aware of it, and just the community overall is very aware of it. So how has the training changed as companies and the communities are aware that there is this gap that they need to fill? Well, it's really a complete paradigm shift in how you think about training. Um, if you think about the military, for example, they have a, a solid training methodology that works and it starts with maybe some classroom it moves into you know maybe a little bit more of the theory but at the end of the day the hands-on piece of what you're doing is the most important part and I feel like industry has kind of flipped that on it flipped that on its head and spent a lot more time focusing on the PowerPoint presentation and the theory and then you should really get that because they're we don't want you hacking into things or doing things like that but Immersion is really the key to making this work. You know, I um, I used to be a bomb technician in the United States Army, and I always I, I use this with my my girls who code and my cyber patriot teams. Okay, that, that if you want to know how to do something very well, like take apart a nuclear weapon or an IED, you also have to know how to make it. Okay, so. If you look at that from the cybersecurity perspective, it's hard for people to conceptualize these, you know, really massive cybersecurity technical terms. But if you bring it down to a level that's understandable and they can understand some basic concepts about what hackers are trying to do to you every day, then suddenly it becomes interesting. Suddenly it becomes fun. Suddenly it becomes, hey, I know how to do that. Right. Uh, I'm wondering. You bring up a good point in in the gap and making it uh, relatable because I know a lot of people that don't think about cybersecurity on a day-to-day basis think that it's, you know, the stereotypes that we see, the, the hacker hoodie in the basement yeah. with with yeah. Uh, Bitcoin servers everywhere and they're trying to operate on the level of a nation-state hacker. I actually have... Uh, um, I actually have a comic on my desk that says, you know, what people think. And it's one of those things where it's, oh, we've, you know, parachuted into somebody's living room and we're going to break open their passwords. (laughs) And then in the next panel, it's reality. It's some dude sitting at a desk going, oh, eBay passwords leaked. Let's run them against Venmo and see if we can get into them. And that's really what it is. So how do you see that? you know, sort of maturing and and how do you push the training to become more relatable? So I think it's a there's a couple of problems that we have to address as a cybersecurity community first and foremost, and that is our messaging of what a cybersecurity person is. Um, uh, I had a, a young woman who was in one of my girls who code teams. Okay. And uh, when she was about to graduate, we were talking about what she was going to do when she went to college. And now she was unbelievably smart. She could code in 16 languages. She was a part of every, you know, cyber security coding club within 50 mile radius. Okay. And she was like, um, yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, my parents really want me to be a doctor, so I'll probably go down that path. And I was like, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like I could get you a job right now with just your skills. And 
her response to that was, I just don't think I'm a black hoodie kind of girl. Mm. And that really tells me a lot about the information that's getting out there to the younger generation, that's getting out there to the average population, that they don't understand really what it takes and right. what a hacker is doing in the background. And those are some of the fundamental things that we're trying to break out in, in Insight is really to allow you to understand these, again, very difficult concepts around um, around offensive skills that will help make you better at defending yourself. Do you think that change could also come from the companies that are putting this training up? Because I feel like a lot of the times just, okay, I think people understand that they don't have black hoodie hackers sitting in a room somewhere, but they have their IT departments and their IT departments are often sectioned off, not really concentrating on what the business is doing on a day-to-day thing. They just fix the computers. So do you think it's upon companies to turn around and say, no, like they're helping support the company just as much as marketing or HR or anything like that? No, and, and that's absolutely key. Um, you know, I mentioned the human attack surface before, and when we're talking about an organization like Microsoft or others, where you have a very large enterprise um, and a lot of different people doing different things, some technical, some not, it's often the non-technical people that, you know, really click on the email or, or click on something that's going to do the ransomware just because they're doing their daily lives, they're, they're going through their emails, they're doing kind of everyday things, but they don't necessarily think of everything that goes behind that and all of the work that a hacker would be doing to get into a company of that size. And the other thing about it is that if you're an organization, especially at that size, and every employee is being trained on these basic um, cybersecurity concepts and understanding how to better protect themselves at work, they're also taking that knowledge home. Like I said, if you if you've really understood how to play this game and it's really great and you've learned a lot from it, why wouldn't you be like, okay, my my two 16-year-old girls, you need to go through this to make yourself safer online. Right. Right. So we expect it to be very much a trickle effect that, you know, if we start in the enterprise area and kind of work from there and start also in the education area and work from there, then we can really start to saturate saturate the general population in terms of our general cyber awareness IQ. So in terms of the cybersecurity workforce shortage, we've been exploring over the past couple of weeks whether it has been self-inflicted because we see a lot of these job listings looking for unicorns in terms of skills, but then also, oh, okay, how about you move to, uh, you know, a nice rural area and we'll pay you $40,000 for your 20 years experience. Is that the case? Do you find it to be the same thing? And what can be done to sort of get past that part of it? I I absolutely think that that's the case. A a lot of the organizations I deal with, you know, um, especially the larger enterprises, they do complain that they can't get enough talent, but they're not willing to give packages to these highly skilled individuals that will be competitive when there are other companies out there who will, you know, some startups that that will be their entire focus is, you know, culture is number one. That's what we have to do. And then by the time a business gets to the place where it's truly a large enterprise, there are so many processes in place that it's difficult to operate outside of those. So one of the challenges that I've seen particularly is um, this kind of siloing of um, budgeting for cybersecurity. Okay. So, for example, you know, the HR budget, HR will have a budget to train cybersecurity, but only, you know, maybe 
20,000 of all of the employees. And then the CTO will have like a budget to train, um, you know, the, only the technical people. Right. But what about everybody else? And how do those things link together? This is a, another paradigm shift that's going to happen in the wake of all of these cyber breaches is that those things have to be interconnected with the um, strategy of the organization. And if they're not, you're going to see that, that lack of uh, connection and communication, and you're going to continue to see your human attack surface you know, taking a beating. Right. So here at Curiosity, we'd like to end our interviews with a random question, but you dropped something there that uh, I, I want to get into. What's it like being a bomb and ordnance disposal? Oh, it's pretty much the best job ever. Okay. <laughs> it's the only place where you can play with explosives and, um, you know, protect the president at the same time. They S- usually don't like that. You talked about the training there. Were you actually trained in how to uh, turn off nuclear? Absolutely. That's fascinating. <laughs> like, I, I want to learn more uh, about that. Like, what... Is it any different than sort of the cybersecurity training in terms of like obviously deep technical know-how, but the way that they are uh, constructed? And you don't need to give away state secrets. No, We've, of course. There's enough of that going around this week in D.C. overall, arguing over state secrets. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, it, it, how uh, complicated are they compared to like – enterprise systems or protecting enterprise systems? Well, they're pretty complicated, (laughs) Uh, pretty technical, also pretty dangerous. You have to to know what you're dealing with. Um, The training methodology that the military uses is is pretty sound in all of their kind of uh, job titles. But um, I think the biggest thing that that we can transfer from kind of what I learned in the military as as an EOD tech into cybersecurity now is that um, the immersive part of it is the most important part. So for EOD, for example, if we're going to uh, learn about how to take apart a firebomb or a particular type of missile or a particular type of IED, then the only way to really do that is to do it on a device that is the device that you're gonna be working on and take it apart, put it back together and understand all the little bits and pieces of it. And that's very similar in cybersecurity. Early, we had a lot of um, sort of division between you're going to be a defender and you know, you're going to be a pen tester and you're going to be a hunter and you're going to be do this. Right. But if you're trying to defend your network and you don't understand how the pen testers are getting in, it, it means nothing. It's, it's kind of a false bravado. But when you start to integrate those together and the offenders and the pen testers are kind of on the same page, then we start to learn new things. We get better insight into what's actually going on in cybersecurity. Great. Keenan, thank you for joining us. Really interesting conversation. No problem. Happy to be here. So thanks again for Keenan to joining us. And uh, Jen, uh, a bomb tech that's developing cybersecurity training. That's, that's a hell of a background right there. That is for sure. All right. And that is all for this week. We will catch you again next week. As always, stay curious.